Welcome back to the podcast. The topic for discussion today is that of therapeutic hypothermia. Now, therapeutic hypothermia is part of our resuscitation science. And people who have had cardiac arrest uh, of, of various types, of which we're going to talk about today, have had improved neurological recovery with use of therapeutic hypothermia. So today we're going to talk about what is therapeutic hypothermia, how do we do it, and who benefits from it. And the idea that needs to be kept in mind is that this is not some Star Trek-y kind of, of science here. This is um, science that has been validated by peer-reviewed literature. And furthermore, it's an element that is considered part of advanced cardiac life support. Uh, several years ago, New York City EMS um, made an announcement that they were only going to transport patients after cardiac arrest to hospitals that did therapeutic hypothermia. One of the strategies that I'll sometimes do while doing a presentation with a PowerPoint kind of deal at an auditorium is put the references up there, and if this is 2010, um, include references from, say, the year 2000. Well, some might look at that and say, well, your references are somewhat dated. The other technique that you can use with that is making the point that what the topic of what we're discussing is not something new. This is something that has been around for quite some time, but for whatever reason, we've been slow to adopt. Uh, despite publications of two randomized controlled trials of therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest, demonstrating a clear neurological outcome and an improvement in mortality over a decade ago, use of therapeutic hypothermia after cardiopulmonary resuscitation remains low. In the case of pre-hospital cardiac arrest, it's estimated between 265,000 and 325,000 cases of out-of-hospital or pre-hospital cardiac arrest occur annually in the United States. Of this number, only 6% of patients survive to discharge, and there's a marked variation in rates of survival between various institutions. Any provider who has provided uh, advanced cardiac life support or cardiopulmonary resuscitation uh, of a patient and has been able to uh, render a survival is always very concerned about what the unknown neurological recovery of the patient is because we frequently know that we can save a patient, give them a return of spontaneous rhythm, give them a blood pressure, only to make the patient neurologically devastated. Therefore, attempts or maneuvers that may preserve neurological function are of great interest in anybody who provides resuscitative efforts following a cardiac arrest. As I've previously said, despite the publication of two prospective randomized trials that over a decade ago, adoption of this technology has been rather slow. I like to provide those references for you so people can go and look at and don't take my word for it, but an article by uh, Nicole and colleagues in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the year was 2008, uh, volumes 300, pages 1423 to 1431. The second article that I'm making reference to was uh, by Bernard and colleagues titled Treatment of Comatose Survivors of Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest with Induced Hypothermia. This was in the New England Journal of Medicine, and that was published in 2002, volume 346, pages 557 to 563. Now, an author uh, named Majesteric, uh, I know I killed that name, I apologize to the author, he wrote an article on resuscitation in the year 2008, 
And the article was the, entitled The Public Health Impact of Full Implementation of Therapeutic Hypothermia After Cardiac Arrest. And again, that's Resuscitation 2008, Volume 77, pages 189 to 194. And he tried to quantify what would be the impact uh, in neurological recovery uh, if we were to have implementation of um, therapeutic hypothermia. And he estimated that the social benefit would uh, be that if all eligible patients receive therapeutic hypothermia, that roughly 2,300 additional patients in the United States and between 1,200 and 7,500 patients in Europe would be spared a poor neurological outcome after surviving cardiac arrest each year if only we were to uniformly uh, adopt the technique of therapeutic cooling. Now, if you translate that into number needed to treat statistics uh, of six patients are needed to treat to prevent one poor neurological outcome and a number needed to treat of seven to prevent one death. The authors then put that in a little bit of a different perspective into, uh, for instance, what would be um, the numbers used for thrombolytic therapy with TPA. And the number needed to treat to prevent one poor neurological outcome uh, using TPA in stroke is eight, and for a trauma center, that number is also eight. So you can see why we have trauma centers. You can see why we use TPA um, uh, for the treatment of, of certain types of strokes. Now, when we look at the use of thrombolytics for the treatment of myocardial infarction, the number needed to treat to save one life is somewhere between 20 and 33. So let's go back. What is the number needed to treat to save a life with therapeutic hypothermia? Well, based on the aforementioned data, that number needed to treat uh, is 6 to prevent one poor neurological outcome and 7 to prevent one death. So if you're saying to yourself, wow, I wonder why we're not seeing more of this, that is precisely the reaction that we would like you to get, is really question why aren't we doing more of this and doing it routinely. Now, after a uh, arrest, we get what's called post-resuscitation pathophysiology. And this has been recognized to be somewhat very similar to kind of a, quote, sepsis-like syndrome that results in increased levels of, of circulating cytokines, inflammatory mediators, and reperfusion. You've often heard me say that uh, the silly expression, it's not the fall that kills you, but it's a sudden stop. Well, certainly suffering a cardiac arrest could kill you, but there are a variety of other conditions, sepsis being one of them, that uh, the body's response to it can be as damaging as the initial insult. Uh, we're talking here about therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest regarding to neurological injury. If we go to something like traumatic brain injury and we imagine a, hitting somebody in the head with a baseball bat or, or something like a gunshot wound, that creates a primary injury. But after that primary injury, we get all the secondary effects uh, of brain swelling and decreased blood flow, uh, cerebral hypertension. And a lot of times that secondary effect may be more damaging or deadly than the primary effect. We've seen something very similar to that in this post-resuscitation pathophysiology is that after a patient's resuscitated, the body then begins to upregulate all these pro-inflammatory cytokines, very much like we see with sepsis, and that upregulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines can actually create ongoing injury and damage. A reference for this would be by uh, Adri, A-D-R-I-E, and colleagues uh, in an article, Successful Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation After Cardiac Arrest as a Sepsis-Like Syndrome. And that was published in Circulation all the way back eight years ago in 2002. That's volume 106, pages 562 to 568. 
Now, after any kind of uh, brain injury, neuronal injury after cardiac arrest is influenced by glutamate-driven excitatory neurotransmitter. Now, free radical production, disrupted calcium homeostasis, inflammatory cell migration, and the activation of proteases and apoptotic pathways create ongoing brain injury. Certainly, the brain is a busy place following uh, restoration of blood flow, following a cardiac arrest. And it appears that hypothermia really um, has an effect on multiple various pathways, that it isn't responsible for doing one thing, and it's that one thing that improves neurological function uh, following a cardiopulmonary arrest. But hypothermia is acting on multiple different levels. One of the things that hypothermia does is it actually decreases the cerebral metabolic rate. Uh, and by doing this, uh, cerebral metabolic rate is often referred to as CMR. And if you're in a state of shock, decreasing the cerebral metabolic rate will actually decrease the oxygen demand of the brain. This is good uh, for a variety of reasons because we, we define shock as oxygen demand being in excess of oxygen delivery. If we're in a post-resuscitation or a shock-type phase, by decreasing the cerebral metabolic rate, we decrease the amount of oxygen or fuel that's consumed by the brain. Uh, it is estimated that for every um, one drop degree in centigrade of body temperature, the cerebral metabolic rate drops by 7%. Hypothermia has been shown to protect the integrity of the blood-brain barrier, which may result in decreasing the amount of cerebral edema that occurs after brain ischemia. Now, the use of therapeutic hypothermia can be described really of three phases. These are, number one, the induction phase, number two is the maintenance phase, and number three is the warming phase. Now, the induction phase is really the, the um, period in which the body temperature is actively being decreased. The maintenance phase is pretty much what it sounds like. It's maintaining that lower body temperature, and the rewarming phase is when the body temperature is allowed to return to its physiological normal. Now, it's important to realize that phase, the induction phase and the rewarming phase are very deliberate processes. When we're decreasing somebody's body temperature and when we're rewarming them, we have certain parameters, rates, at which we allow the body to cool and when we allow the body to warm. Um, being too rapid in one of these may have potential harmful effects to the patient, which we would certainly want to avoid. Now, rewarming the brain simply does not just cool the brain. It has significant physiological effects in, or in other organ systems that we have to be aware of. Uh, even mild hypothermia affects normal cardiac, pulmonary, endocrine, and renal function that has to be considered when providing care to a critically ill patient in that post-resuscitative uh, phase. Let's consider the heart for a second. At temperatures between 32 degrees centigrade and 34 degrees centigrade, myocardial contractility increases and the heart rate declines as a result of decreased spontaneous depolarization of the various pacemaker cells. Now, peripheral vasoconstriction causes an increase in systemic vascular resistance that can increase the blood pressure during the induction phase, and the metabolic rate decreases, as we said, about 7% for every 1 degree centigrade in core body temperature. Now, as the core temperature falls below 30 degrees, the risk of significant arrhythmias increases, first of the appearance of atrial fibrillation, and as the temperature continues to fall, you have increased rates of ventricular tachycardia um, and ventricular fibrillation. Now let's shift our focus on the effects of hypothermia on the kidneys, uh, as well as management of electrolytes. Uh, hypothermia uh, will 
change uh, levels of plasma electrolytes and a result of uh, diuresis by triggering intracellular shifts of potassium, magnesium, calcium, and phosphate. And that may also increase the rate of uh, various arrhythmias. Uh, therefore, when you're doing hypothermia, it's necessary to do frequent monitoring of electrolytes during the active phases of therapeutic hypothermia. And aggressive potassium repletion should be um, given to maintain normal levels. Now, as rewarming occurs, potassium that is shifted into the cells during cooling may suddenly shift out of the cells and create a risk for uh, rebound hyperkalemia. So it's important to be mindful that during hypothermia, the patient's serum potassium will drop. It is not because the patient's total body potassium depleted, uh, but it is because the, the potassium is shifting intracellularly. Now, we still will need to replace the potassium in order to maintain normal homeostasis. But during the rewarming uh, process, you need to be very mindful of is that potassium is going to start coming uh, uh, back out of the cells, and you need to be mindful of that as you start considering replacing potassium right before rewarming because the potassium is going to go up by itself with rewarming. Now, you can mitigate this effect somewhat uh, and hopefully reduce the risk by the rate at which you rewarm somebody. So this risk of hyperkalemia is decreased by doing a slow rewarming process and rewarming the patient no faster than 0.25 degrees centigrade per hour. Don't rewarm the patient more than a quarter of a degree an hour or 0.25 degrees, said another way. Now, mild hypothermia, mild hypothermia will cause a decrease in insulin secretion and an increase in insulin resistance. So we're cooling the patient, we're going to have decreased insulin secretion, we're going to have increased insulin resistance. Obviously, this is going to create some hyperglycemia, and if you have the patient, say, on an insulin drip, you're going to see an increase in the insulin requirements during the induction and the maintenance phases of cooling. You can make bank on this. Now, the optimal degree of glucose control is still controversial on multiple levels. We don't do know that we're dealing with a brain-injured patient, and hyperglycemia is, is bad, uh, and hyperglycemic patients, um, but uh, some patients, uh, some units will target a, a blood glucose of less than 180 as part of their standard insulin protocol. Our unit targets 150. Other units go all the way down to 80 to 110. Uh, clearly, there's, there's no agreement on this yet. Now, as with other derangements and electrolytes, insulin resistance may reverse rewarming and may result in a sudden hypoglycemia. So again, as you're going through the rewarming, you're thinking about what is my potassium. I'm probably going to increase my frequency of my potassium potassium uh, sampling. I'm also going to increase my frequency of my insulin, or excuse me, my glucose measure because I know that my resistance to my glucose is going to decrease. My intrinsic glucose uh, res, uh, release is going to improve. And if I don't keep a close eye on that, I actually may uh, induce hypoglycemia during the rewarming period. Now, we've already said that by decreasing the patient's uh, body temperature, we're decreasing the metabolic rate. And as we decrease the metabolic rate, uh, the engines are running slower, and that results in a decrease um, in production of carbon dioxide at lower body temperatures. Now, if the patient's on a mechanical ventilator and you don't really change the ventilator settings during the cooling, you'll basically have a situation where you'll have hyperventilation. And again, be mindful that we're taking 
taking care of a patient who has brain injury. So let's go through this said another way, is that the idea of cooling the patient, part of our normal metabolic processes are that we burn oxygen and we create carbon dioxide. One of the things that we know following an injury like this is that cooling is protective to the brain. Cooling decreases our cerebral metabolic rate uh, and it it slows the metabolic rate of various organ systems so that if you had a minute ventilation on your ventilator uh, say say 12 or 15 liters the actual number isn't important but you understand the concept is that if that is what you need to get make the patient's carbon dioxide level uh, of their blood gas 40 as we cool the patient the the cellular machinery, the metabolic rate slows. It's consuming less oxygen. That's a desirable effect, but it's also producing less carbon dioxide. If we leave the ventilator settings the same, we have too high of a minute ventilation and we will end up hyperventilating the patient. You may say to yourself, well, hyperventilation of the brain injury, isn't that a good thing? No, not always. We want to hyperventilate patients who have signs of cerebral hypertension, but hyperventilating a patient without cerebral hypertension doesn't benefit the patient. And if you over-hyperventilate a patient, you actually decrease blood flow to the brain, and in doing so, decrease oxygen delivery. So you need to, again, one of the things you're checking a lot is your potassium. We said you're checking your blood glucose a lot, and you're also going to need to check your PCO2 on your blood gases and make changes in your ventilators as you go along. Now, if you want to go back all the way to high school uh, and think about your gas laws, you know that solubility of different gases changes with temperature. And at lower temperatures, the solubility of gases in liquid mixture increases. Most blood gas analyzers will take the blood gas sample and warm it to 37 degrees prior to measuring the pH, the PCO2, and the PO2. Now, without correcting for the patient's actual body temperature, doing this will overestimate the PCO2 and PO2 during hypothermia because portions of the dissolved gas come out of solution on rewarming and contribute to a partial pressure that's detected. Now, what does hypothermia do to our ability to fight infection? Decreased body temperature impairs the body's normal ability to fight infections, uh, decreases the migration of leukocytes, and decreases the production of certain inflammatory mediators. Now, we've said that inflammatory mediators may be part of the problem, uh, and uh, clearly that is, uh, but also some inflammatory mediators are necessary to help fight uh, and protect ourselves from infections. Now, there was the hypothermia to improve the neurological outcome after cardiac arrest trial, and they demonstrated that there was an increase of risk of pneumonia and sepsis with hypothermia, but in that particular study, it did not reach statistical significance. There was an article by Nielsen and colleagues, and they um, did demonstrate that uh, there is an association of therapeutic hypothermia and increased rates of infection, but clearly the risks of infection uh, are offset by the beneficial uh, increase in, in neurological outcome and survival that the cooling provides. So clearly, if we're cooling a patient, we need to be very vigilant for the development of infection. Now, clearly, if we're actively cooling a patient, the use of fever Uh, is not a a reliable indicator of infection either. Uh, The intensity of cooling required to maintain a given temperature could be used as a surrogate for fever. Uh, But again, this is kind of reading tea leaves, and and it's really difficult to make any um, 
definitive statements about this, but the idea is that if a patient is refractory to cooling or you need to uh, increase your cooling methods to maintain a, a particular cool temperature that you may be indicating whether well, this patient may be trying to mount a fever and therefore we need to start a search and investigation for possible sources of uh, infections. Depending on the particular cooling device used, uh, there are many devices that have an indicator of the intensity of cooling by displaying the temperature of the circulating water used to cool the patient. Therefore, you need to be tracking the temperature of the water uh, and be able to see whether um, that temperature is going down, and that may be uh, inversely related to what the patient's trying to do in regards to mount a fever. Currently, the uh, recommendations for those patients who would uh, uh, potentially benefit from therapeutic hypothermia are those patients who've had a spontaneous return of spontaneous circulation after ventricular fibrillation or after pulseless ventricular tachycardia. Um, and these recommendations are based on principally two studies. One was by Bernard and colleagues that have already quoted from the New England Journal of Medicine. Year was 2002, volume 346, pages 557 and 563. And then the other was, the, uh, was a paper that was entitled Mild Therapeutic Hypothermia to Improve the Neurological Outcome After Cardiac Arrest. That was in New England Journal of Medicine. Year was 2002, volume 346, page 549 to 556. Now, certainly, therapeutic hypothermia can be attempted on other groups of patients, but one certainly is not likely to um, be as positive about the, uh, the potential benefits of patients. Patients with an initial rhythm of PEA or asystole have a poor prognosis than those patients who have shockable rhythm, rhythms. However, there's really no reason to believe that once return of spontaneous circulation is established, that those patients who have, say, PEA or asystole uh, will not benefit from the neuroprotective effects of hypothermia as well. Several investigators are currently looking at the possibility of initiating therapeutic hypothermia prior to return of spontaneous circulation in the hope that ultra-early cooling may result in either greater neuroprotective benefit than if it were or started um, after successful return uh, of uh, circulation after CPR. Now, there are some animal models of V-fib arrests that have shown that even a 15-minute delay in the initiation of cooling results in a markably worse outcome and more severe uh, histological damage of brain tissue. Even a 15-minute delay. Uh, so this brings in the interesting question is what is the relevance of timing? Uh, it is interesting to think about is that while we're resuscitating the patient, should we be cooling them? Uh, the results on that remain unknown. But clearly the animal data would indicate that as soon as we get return of spontaneous circulation, we have to immediately start the process of cooling and that even 15 minutes of delay can have um, significant neurological uh, results. Now that sounds all very good when we're sitting here talking about it, but I want you to kind of think about what's going on during that cardiopulmonary resuscitation or in the moments immediately after. There may be a lot of people, there may be a lot of equipment, there's a lot of things going on. The patient may um, be needing to go to the cath lab. Uh, in the setting of ST segment elevation MI, or what people like to call a STEMI, immediate percutaneous coronary intervention or thrombolysis uh, is often necessary and is often life-saving. Uh, life in situations where a STEMI is suspected after cardiac arrest, rapid transfer to the patient 
from the care of the emergency department to the cath lab becomes of uh, paramount importance. However, early therapeutic cooling should be instituted prior to transfer and should be continued through the catheterization procedure. Now, mild hypothermia causes reversible platelet dysfunction and an increase in clotting times, which has led some to concern about possible increased risk of bleeding when therapeutic hypothermia is used in conjunction with standard anticoagulation and thrombolytic therapies in the period after uh, in the treatment of an acute myocardial infarction. Sheffold and colleagues, they prospectively analyzed 31 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who were treated for acute MI after a turn of spontaneous circulation, and those patients subsequently received therapeutic hypothermia for 24 hours. 25 patients received uh, angioplasty, and 11 received uh, thrombolytics. When these authors compared these particular patients to historical controls, the rates of bleeding complications were identical, as was the need for blood transfusions. Uh, there was an author, Wolfram, uh, and colleagues, and they have an article named Mild Therapeutic Hypothermia in Patients After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Due to Acute ST Segment Elevation Myocardial Infarction undergoing immediate percutaneous coronary intervention. Now, that paper was in Critical Care Medicine in 2008, Volume 36, page 1780. And what those authors demonstrated um, was that therapeutic hypothermia could be initiated prior to cardiac catheterization with no impact on the door-to-balloon time when also compared to historical controls. However, despite these studies, uh, the uh, likelihood of a patient getting therapeutic hypothermia after a cardiac arrest uh, and uh, um, is relatively slow um, or non-existent when patients are going either to the cath lab or requiring uh, anticoagulation. So how do we go about doing this? Well, there are several methods of cooling patients um, um, and starting the process of therapeutic hypothermia. These include surface cooling, endovascular cooling, and infusions of ice saline. Now, surface cooling is pretty straightforward. It uses things like ice packs, evaporative sprays, cooling blankets, or fitted pads with circulating cold water to lower the temperature. There's no study that compares surface and endovascular cooling has demonstrated a clear clinical advantage of one method over another. And practitioners are encouraged to use whatever method they feel comfortable with and it fits the budgetary constraints of their hospital because some of these techniques are very, very expensive. Um, now, the use of infused uh, uh, ice saline is, is attractive to some folks because it is reasonably low cost, it's low tech, and results in a rapid induction of mild hypothermia. Um, uh, author named Rajek, uh, R-A-J-E-K, he and his colleagues uh, wrote a paper and published it in um, anesthesiology, and uh, it was published in 2000, and the title of the paper is Core Cooling by Central Venous Infusion of Ice-Cold 4 Degrees Centigrade Fluid uh, Isolation of Core and Peripheral Thermal Compartments. And again, that was in Anesthesiology. The year was 2000, Volume 93. Um, page started as uh, uh, 629. And he used healthy anesthetized volunteers, and they were able to demonstrate that rapid infusion of 40 mLs per kilo a 4 degrees centigrade normal saline by a central venous catheter resulted in a drop in the core body temperature of 2.5 degrees centigrade in 30 minutes. Furthermore, the drop in core temperature was greater than expected due to relative isolation of the core and peripheral compartments caused by peripheral vasoconstriction. There's another pa paper by uh, Kim A. Colleagues. 
Um, and this is a randomized clinical trial of pre-hospital induction of mild hypothermia in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with rapid infusion of 4 degrees centigrade normal saline. Now, this appeared in circulation in the year 2007, volume 115. Page start was 3,064. And in this study, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest victims were randomized to receive either cold saline infusion or up to 2 liters uh, of up to two liters upon return of spontaneous circulation while still in the emergency care of pre-hospital providers. Field cooling is associated with a mean drop in temperature of about 1.2 degrees centigrade from the initiation of infusion to arrival to the emergency department. Now, there was no statistically significant differences were found between the groups uh, in regard to the patient's PaO2, the pressure requirements, or pulmonary edema on initial chest x-ray. Uh, other devices that are used are some of these endovascular uh, cooling devices that are reasonably expensive. Uh, they're reasonably automated, uh, and you can place a catheter in uh, uh, basically the central vein, vena cava, and it's able to uh, cool the patient effectively. And other some of these cooling pads, uh, Arctic Sun is what we particularly use. It's very very easy and straightforward to use. But the pads that you apply to the patient are disposable, single-use, and very expensive. Uh, and that would be cost-prohibitive uh, for some organizations. Um, now, once you start cooling the patient, and we've all been cold, we know that one of the things we want to do as we get cold is we try to shiver. And the reason why we try to shiver is that the actual process of shivering is basically generates body heat. Now, rapid cooling... Uh, really depends on the ability to suppress the normal shivering response. Um, and the central thermoregulatory mechanisms responsible for shivering are triggered in responses to decrease in body temperature and are maximal above 34 degrees centigrade. Now, shivering can profoundly slow the rate of cooling and furthermore contributes to the exaggerated metabolic demand that may undermine the beneficial effects of hypothermia. So, again, what shivering does is it tries to generate body heat, but it also is consuming, is increasing the consumption of oxygen, two things that we're trying to avoid. Now, resting energy expenditure and oxygen consumption are increased during shivering, precisely what we're trying to avoid. Now, uh, there are uh, various institutions have various methods. Uh, some will use a stepwise protocol um, to try to uh, reduce shivering um, and include things like non-volatile anesthetics such as propofol, occasionally paralytics for refractory uh, shivering, uh, uh, have been used. Uh, mag sulfate uh, can also be uh, given to attain a level of 3 to 4 milligrams per deciliter, and this promotes peripheral vasodilation and also acts as a muscle relaxant. At our particular institution, uh, we use um, uh, paralytics. Um, Pyridine, also known as Demerol, it's a unique opiate, not commonly used anymore because of some of its toxic metabolites that build up. Um, but it's unique because it's an agonist with both kappa and mu receptors and has been shown to be effective in decreasing shivering. Now, as we said, repeat dosing of apiridine has made the drug less uh, attractive for use for perioperative narcotics, and um, uh, repeat dosing of apiridine may cause um, sedation and medication is thought to have been lower seizural threshold and patients that are at increased risks. Now, alpha-2 agonists such as clonidine and dexmetomidine are thought to inhibit neuronal firing, 
related to thermosensitivity. Dexmatomidine has been associated with occasional bradycardia and hypotension, but it's well tolerated by most patients. Failing these therapies, fentanyl and propofol infusions can be employed to suppress refractory shivering. During the induction phase of, of cooling, uh, often a, a bolus dose of a paralytic to facilitate rapid attainment of goal temperature um, can also be uh, helpful. And like I said, some uh, people will actually use long-term paralysis. Probably not necessary, and, and paralytics certainly have their associated complications. Another medication, buspirinone, which is a serotonin uh, partial agonist, thought to activate the hypothalamic heat loss mechanisms, has been acted uh, synergistically with amipiridine um, to lower the shivering threshold, uh, and it's also another drug that could be considered uh, in lieu of um, um, using a paralysis. We've already mentioned some of the issues of rewarming, that you don't want to rewarm a patient at greater than 0.25 degrees centigrade per hour. And as we're rewarming, we want to be mindful of changes in the patient's metabolic rate, the changes in their serum potassium, as well as their changes in sensitivity uh, to insulin, uh, as well as uh, insulin release. So So complications such as hyperkalemia or hypoglycemia need to be watched for very closely. So that's our introduction on therapeutic hypothermia and uh, certainly something worthy of your consideration. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I'm Associate Professor of Surgery at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Check out the other podcasts that we do, uh, the PHTLS podcast, as well as uh, Pharmacology for the pre-hospital professional. Many have asked for a kind of a development of an application for on-demand that is available. Uh, it is available um, through iTunes. Uh, there's a nominal fee that the developer uh, of that gets, and they split that with Apple. Um, some people reported some problems to me uh, regarding the application. I got back with the developers, and they got that fixed. So hopefully that's that's working, and we shouldn't have any more complications. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>